I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This series examines uh, the healthcare ecosystem and its current business challenges. And in each episode, I'm going to be talking to key leaders and stakeholders in that industry um, to understand yeah, how they're anticipating and, and navigating certain market dynamics. In this current series, we're actually focusing on COVID-19 and uh, the numerous challenges that you know, the pandemic has actually unleashed on, on the healthcare industry. So uh, in line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, a special guest, uh, Raymond uh, J. Teasy. Uh, um, RJ uh, is the present uh, CEO and the acting CMO of Immune Bio Inc. It's a, a public quoted immunology company which is headquartered in La Jolla, California, and they're developing uh, treatments that harness the, the, the patient's innate uh, immune, uh, immune, immune systems. Um, the company has a, a number of ongoing clinical trials uh, targeting cancers, uh, Alzheimer's disease, and in the context of this series, they've also just initiated a clinical program that seeks to determine whether its TNF inhibitor can actually uh, prevent complications of cytokine storm caused by COVID-19. So RJ, I, I, hope, uh, I hope you're you and those you care about are, are, are doing well and keeping safe. And thanks so much for, for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank Mike uh, for uh, having me on your show. And, uh, and uh, I am delighted to be able to talk about not only the topic of COVID-19, because it's a fascinating topic and a dramatic public health uh, problem, but also you know, we've lived firsthand this um, problem of how it's affected our business. In, the, in, a, in a biotech business like ourself, uh, there have been a number of, uh, of uh, pressures on the, on the company, uh, some positive, some negative. And, uh, and I think our uh, company is a microcosm of both. Yeah, so, so actually, before we actually talk specifically about COVID-19, or you know your COVID nineteen trial, could you sort of just sort of you know, outline you know what those sort of challenges and opportunities that this this pandemic has has caused? Yes, yeah, so um, I think it, they fall under a number of categories. The first thing is you know any biotech, particularly a small biotech that uh, like ours that does not have yet a commercial footprint. Their, shall we say, their daily bread is clinical development. We have to be doing clinical trials of testing and developing our drugs in patient populations uh, because that's how we drive science forward and that's how we drive value for investors. And, you know, remember, biotech is about, about science, but it's business. And I like to say that it's really the business of medicine is what uh, biotech is all about. But in our case, our, we had programs, have programs in cancer, in Alzheimer's disease, and uh, soon in NASH, which is non-alcoholic steohepatitis, which is a form of end-stage liver disease. And those um, programs have all become somewhat dislocated by the fact that many of the hospitals have gone into a, you know, a COVID-only mode in preparation for you know, surges. So they've uh, limited the number of patients that come, come into the hospital. They've limited clinical trials, et cetera. So in our case, 
you know, we where we do a lot of our trials in Australia, and Australia has done a great job of of squashing the curve. But they wanted to keep the patients out of the clinic because they were afraid they would catch disease. This was our Alzheimer's trial. As you can imagine, you know, the average age of an Alzheimer's patient is, is older. I think it's in our trial. And this is a high-risk population. But we have uh, been able to, you know, change our trials a little bit to accommodate this, and we continue to move forward. So that's the, the hard part. The good part, or shall I say the opportunistic part, and I'll be honest, you know, there's, uh, there's to a lot of biotechs, you know, business opportunities that weren't available two months ago have been laid at their feet. And, you know, because we are interested in inflammation and focus on the innate immune system, macrophages, monocytes, uh, NK cells, it turns out that the major complications of COVID-19 are inflammation. And those, the things that drive that inflammation are macrophages and monocytes. So we are perfectly positioned to actually um, get involved in the disease. And in fact, we had been kind of, you know, keeping it, you know, wary eye on the, on the whole thing until about a month ago when two or three sites that were very familiar with our drug said, hey, you've got the right drug to treat the complications of these diseases. You know, please think about getting involved. We've thrown our hat in the ring and we're up to our elbows in it and we believe we've done the right thing and we're moving forward. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm working for home, but I've been working as hard as I have ever worked because we're trying to compress a process that usually takes six or eight months that is starting a clinical trial into six or eight weeks. And um, everybody's stepping up, including the regulatory agencies like the FDA. And it's been a fascinating process, and we think we're going to make a difference. So before we sort of you know, talk about that particular experience and, 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 and what you're trying to do, could it just sort of get a little bit granular on? So you sort of said, right, okay, with the, with the Alzheimer's uh, trials, with, with those patients that you had to sort of uh, you know, sort of pivot, could you sort of explain what you did to sort of, you know, sort of minimize the disruption to the trial? Yeah. So um, the way the trial is designed is it's a early stage trial. So we're treating a small number of patients, but we study them intensively. And what that means is we see them frequently. And much of that requires uh, coming to the clinic. And so we had to work with the institutions to come up with a strategy that these patients could be safely uh, seen in a way that kind of embargoed them from the COVID-19 risk. Um, so that required, and to the credit of the institutions, they stepped up on this. Their position was, and I'm talking about Australia now, their position was, we're not gonna start new trials, but if you have an ongoing trial, we're, not gonna, we're gonna do everything we can to, to not turn it off. So it required a, us to make adjustments in how they come in and also make adjustments in looking at some of the major endpoints. Some of the endpoints are things like MRI scans, which are an imaging uh, uh, process of the brain and the lumbar puncture where we're looking at fluid uh, around the spine to look at inflammatory biomarkers. And, you know, we've had to be creative in getting those done. And there have been some delays, but the bottom line is the delays in our case have been at the end of the, at the part of the trial 
where if you're delaying a week or two or three, as long as the patient remains on therapy, it's not uh, problematic. Um, the good news is that although I still can't go to Australia, I mean, if I go to Australia, I have to quarantine myself for 14 days, but they are beginning to open up and quote, normalize. And I put that in quotes because as you know, when we, as we reopen any environment, whether it be London, where you are, the US, where I am, it's not going to be like it was in January. There's going to be it's going to be an interesting six or seven months as we all work through this. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the uh, the immunes. You know, um, look at uh, the COVID itself. You you have a TNF alpha inhibitor platform, um, and you know inhibition of TNF is you know associated with you know a, a lot of treatments anyway. You know particularly sort of inflammatory diseases, et cetera. Um, could you sort of explain, you know, how the platform you have actually differs from the other approaches that are in, inhibiting um, TNF? Yeah, this is a very important question. And it's a, a question that um, most people um, have uh, little knowledge of this difference. As you said, TNF inhibitors have been around if it's not 20 years, it's certainly more than 15 years, and they have revolutionized the care of patients with autoimmune disease, including rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, alkalosis, spondylitis, and inflammatory bowel disease. But those, I call them the first-generation TNF inhibitors, are what we call non-selective. They block all types of TNF. It turns out there's two types of TNFs. There's a soluble TNF, which is the bad TNF, and there's a transmembrane TNF, which is the good TNF. And by good TNF, what I mean is it potentiates the immune response. It promotes uh, uh, brain health by promoting remyelination. Myelin is the, is the insulation around, uh, around uh, neurons. And it, um, it can be used, can modify the immune response in a way that allows uh, better response to both an infection and cancer. So in a word, it is not immunosuppressive. The problem with the first generation drugs is they are immunosuppressive. In other words, if you give them, you give, have an increased risk of cancer, an increased risk of infection, and an increased risk of MS, which is a form of demyelinating neurological disease. Now, I was a transplant surgeon in my previous life before I joined biotech. I spent years trying to balance this issue when you've got an immunosuppressed patient, because in transplant, you give medicines to tamp down the immune system so they accept the organ, and viral infection, life-threatening viral infections, were a big part of that, that, that process, that what happened in the early stage of transplant. So I spent years trying to balance immunosuppression with life-threatening viral diseases. And I can tell you, the last thing you want to do when you have someone with a life-threatening viral infection is increase their immunosuppression. I can, you're going to have a, it's a nightmare. And I think the WHO was first to state this with COVID-19, where over two months ago, they made the statement that do not give corticosteroids to patients with COVID-19 because they increase the risk of mortality. And that is because corticosteroids, they're great anti-inflammatories, but they are immunosuppressive. So they make things worse. Our platform, which is dominant negative TNF platform, we call the drug Queller, Queller 
in, in, uh, for our COVID-19 experience is a potent anti-inflammatory because it completely neutralizes soluble TNF, the bad TNF, but it completely ignores the good TNF, transmembrane TNF. And as a result, you do not get immunosuppression. And in fact, in animal models, we improve the response to bacterial infections. We improve the response to, um, uh, to parasitic infections like malaria. We do not change the response to viral infections. We've studied both equine encephalitis virus and Coxsackie B3. So it is, a, it is almost tailor-made for a disease like COVID-19 where you don't want to make the viral infection worse by immunosuppressing them, but you want to really take a sledgehammer to the inflammatory process so you can get the disease under control. Right, yeah, so that, that, that is the sort of the scientific rationale by, for, for, for using your, your approach, where yeah, you can... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and I would add two other little quirks. I mean, one of the interesting things about COVID-19 is as time goes on, we're learning more and more about the disease. You remember three months ago when the disease started, everybody was worried about the pulmonary disease and we were going to run out of ventilators. And, you know, the pul- there's no question the pulmonary disease is a big deal. But we've kind of figured that out. We turns out we're not going to run out of ventilators. And now then suddenly everybody was worried about running out of enough dialysis machines because it turned out that renal failure, renal failure was a big problem. And then about a month ago, suddenly the coagulopathy or the problems with uh, forming abnormal clots became a big, you know, concern. And that is, you know, some of it was stimulated by a famous Broadway actor ended up with a young guy ended up with an amputation due to a complication to uh, an embolus from COVID-19. And then in the last week, suddenly we're now worried about kids who are presenting with the systemic inflammatory uh, syndrome related, most likely related to a previous exposure to COVID-19. I mean, to know COVID-19 is to know medicine. I remember when I was in medical school and which was a while ago. I mean, my professor said, if you know syphilis, you know medicine because syphilis affected all organ systems. And I can say that's the same with COVID-19. If you know COVID-19, you know medicine because it affects the brain, it affects the lungs, it affects the livers, it affects the GI tract, affects the kidneys, and affects the cardiovascular system. So it is a very complex disease. And I think that we in biopharma need to kind of back away and say, ooh, 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 the lungs are important, but let's really talk about treating the disease of COVID-19, not just the symptoms of COVID-19, which are, and in, in the dramatic symptom is the patient who ends up in the ICU intubated with ARDS. So it's, it's um, you know, our approach is we've got some very interesting ideas and data about, you know, one of the advantages of targeting soluble TNF, which is the bad TNF, we inhibit the ability of cells to get out of the blood vessel into the tissues where they cause their damage. We have effects on the coagulopathy. So we're, we're really messing with a lot more of the pathology of the disease. And when we get into the clinic, we're going to study all this and see if we can make a difference in patients' lives. So you mentioned that it was a few weeks back when, you know, some people that you were working with sort of said, hey, you know, maybe, you know, this could be useful for, you know, sort of treating uh, COVID-19 patients. 
can you sort of <clears throat> sort of just describe you know what that process was like you know the sort of discussions and what you then decided what you're going to target because clearly there's sort of potential in, in, in lots of places I'm just sort of thinking you know, in, in terms of designing a clinical trial with endpoints um, you, you don't want to go for the, the whole show you, you you want to be focused so could you just help us understand what the what the sort of the, the thinking was yeah that's that's a great question I'm going to answer it in two parts first as a public company, you know, this is not about management making decisions. It's about management informing the board of directors and making decisions with, you know, investors in mind. So that's number one. And then we'll talk about choosing the endpoints because this is a very important process in designing a clinical trial. But what happened to us when these, you know, people we were working with came, you know, contacted us, it happened to be just about, just as we were about to have our a board meeting. So basically, you know, I took that information, did a little bit of a deep dive to see if it made sense that we enter uh, enter a therapeutic trial for COVID-19, and it did. And we had a, a very, you know, lively discussion with the board of directors who really gave us the the green light. And And I will say that, you know, the kind of comments that came out was, you know, that, you know, look, people are dying. If you can make a difference, you know, let's let's give it a try i mean it wasn't it's not it was not on our kind of mission pathway so to speak but and I, the the company was was encouraged by the board of investors who represent board of in, uh, directors who represent the investors to move forward and i have to say that i think biopharma in general has done a pretty good job in this regard some of it's purely opportunistic because there's you know a business out there and some of it is just because we've got the science let's see how it works and so um you know I, I think that we in biopharma should get some credit for that so we made the decision or we got the green light from the board to move forward and then the question came to the very important one that you bring up who are we going to treat the obvious place to go was to follow the leaders that the people that had gotten an earlier start and you know, a lot of people at that time were very focused on the pulmonary disease of COVID-19, these patients in the ICU with ARDS. You know, once again, as a someone who spent a lot of time taking care of sick patients, and I can tell you as a professional drug developer, that's a very difficult place to do a, a clinical trial. So we said, hmm, you know, there's a lot of good science and good companies there already trying to make a difference in the patients with ARDS. Where do we have a better chance of being successful? And we became very interested in the group of patients that come into the hospital. In other words, they've come to the ER or come to a clinic. They're symptomatic. And when, they, when, they're, when they're tested with this thing called the, uh, a pulse ox, which they put on their finger, they actually have evidence of, of uh, low oxygen in their blood. Their room air saturation is below, you know, let's call it 94% or 93%, which means they've got lung disease. It's actually much more sensitive to do this than to get a chest x-ray or to ask them if they're short of breath. It turns out one of the funny symptoms of COVID-19 is, is what the, what's been classified these happy hypoxics. These people show up at clinic, they're talking on their cell phone, and they say, doc, I don't feel very well. You put this machine on them, and you get a number that's like 70% back and the alarm bells go, go off with the clinical teams because 
that's like a medical emergency. And the patient's looking around going, what's the big deal? I feel, you know, I, I don't feel short of breath. So it's one of the interesting little twists of the business. But I, I, I got off topic. The bottom line, so we're focused on those patients because 30% of, of those patients, they get admitted. 30% of those patients are in crash and burn, end up in the ICU, end up intubated. And at least in New York City, if you got intubated, you over 85% of the time, you die. So our, because that is driven by cytokine storm, of which one of the primary cytokines is soluble to that process of progression of lung disease and, 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 and shall we say drift into the ICU, we wanted to target those people. And our goal is to keep them out of the ICU. Once they get into the ICU, that's a different battle. It's almost a different disease. The disease I'm treating is the disease of cytokine storm, the disease of preventing the activated immune cells from one, getting activated, two, getting from the blood vessel to the lung, and three, from causing that coagulopathy. And if I can control that, we can keep the patients out of the ICU, get them home faster. And so that's the, that's the patient population we're going after. And we think we made the right choice. I mean, at the end of the day, it depends on, you know, it all depends on what data we get out of the clinical trial, but we like our positioning, we like our drug, and we think we can make a difference. So the endpoint is going to be something just as simple as <clears throat> um, keeping people out of going into the ICU? Yeah, good point. So when we, we've been obviously talking with the FDA and, and I wanted to use what we call a composite endpoint. You know, I wanted kind of a Chinese menu of these catastrophic complications of move to the ICU, intubation, acute renal failure, you know, new onset of neurologic cardiovascular thromboembolic disease or death. And the FDA said, no, no, you got to pick one. And the one they recommend is, is the need for mechanical um, uh, uh, ventilation. So the primary endpoint is going to be the need for mechanical intervent, uh, ventilation. But we're going to measure all these other things because, as I said early on, I think one of the big not a big mistake, one of the mistakes that biopharma has made is in some ways they're still treating the disease of two months ago, which was as a disease of, of pulmonary pathology. This is a disease that has a lot of other stuff going. And I think we need to be more thoughtful, sensitive, insightful, innovative in what, how we, we, we target the pathology. So, so when do you sort of anticipate being able to you know, start um, you know, treating um, patients or you know, running the trial? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, we were actually poised to get started pretty quickly in Australia um, because, you know, we're already running trials there. So setting up a new trial is quite easy. Uh, quite honestly, they don't have a lot of patients in Australia. They have some, and they're expecting a surge associated with their winter. Remember, they're on the opposite seasons of us. Um, so, but when the FDA came back, and that's just a couple days old with, you know, um, these recommendations of how they wanted the trial designed, We've kind of slowed things down in Australia because we're going to run the trial as a, as a, at least we hope to, as a um, as an international trial. We're going to enroll patients in both the United States and and in uh, yeah, sure. So as as we go forward, um, 
you know, beyond the binary, you know, does it work, does it not work? Um, with the sort of the clinical trial, what, what, what do you think your biggest challenge is going to be with, the, with this program? Is it, is it sort of just getting the, um, uh, the, uh, the patients to, to, to enroll? Uh, good question. I think, you know, I tend to be, you know, so early on, you remember early on in the, in the COVID-19 thing, a lot of people were like, oh, this is going to be another fire drill like SARS or MERS. You remember SARS or MERS, which are first cousins to COVID-19. They came, everybody, you know, a lot of activity occurred, and then they were never heard from again. And so, one of the questions we get asked by investors and actually came up at the board was, you know, if you start some effort, you know, to go after COVID-19 and in November it's gone and never, never heard from again, what happens? I mean, you've just wasted a tremendous amount of your scarce resources, both time and treasure. So I think it's pretty, you know, I'm a big fan of Tony Fauci. I mean, I'm, it's pretty clear that this thing's not going away right away. We don't know what the shape of those future uh, pandemics, uh, future, you know, uh, uh, parts of the disease will be. But I think there are two parts that are important. First of all, coronavirus is here to stay in one form or the other. After COVID-19, there's gonna be a COVID-22. And bet is it won't be the same as this one, but it will have a similar enough pathophysiology. And I can tell you, I hope, next time we'll be more prepared for it. And some of that preparation will be because we have treatments like ours. Remember, we're not an antiviral, so we're not only gonna be able to treat COVID-19, we're treating complications of these bad viral infections. So we can plug and play, you name the virus, we'll be able to play a role. The second thing, and this is a, this is a promise we made both to our investors and our board, that we would not jump into a COVID-19 effort if we did not see a commercial opportunity that was beyond COVID-19. In other words, if COVID-19 disappeared in November, it's not going to, but if it did, would our efforts be wasted? And it turns out the answer is no. There's a medical condition called cytokine release syndrome and, and immune-mediated complications, which are related to these new immuno-oncology drugs. The cytokine release syndrome was made famous by uh, CAR T cells. You know, you give the CAR T cells and you get this spectacular fireworks of a cytokine storm that is very symptomatic. And obviously we couldn't use our drug to uh, treat that. The more interesting one to me, and I think the biggest opportunity is there's a whole series of immune mediated complications associated with these drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Immune checkpoint inhibitors have revolutionized the care of cancer because they're all about harnessing the patient's T cells, their adaptive immunity, immune system to attack the cancer. Sometimes when they start attacking the cancer, they get a little wild and they, you end up with these immune-mediated complications. And it turns out that the TNF is a, is a very, or, or our drug, which is targeting uh, neutralizing soluble TNF is a perfect solution for treating those. So our approach is that, you know, we're going we're gonna to be there for, you know, COVID-19. We're going to be there. Hopefully, you know, hopefully the government sees the value of our program and, 
wants to kind of keep get keep us involved for future pandemics. I hope they don't occur, but I'm a realist. But we do see commercial opportunities that are real, not manufactured, i.e., you know, management is a, of biotechs are very innovative at manufacturing disease opportunities. But these are res, real disease opportunities taking care of site or treating car, uh, cytokine release syndrome and immune mediated complications of uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Sure. So, um, you mentioned earlier on the fact that there have been sort of, you know, sort of regulatory delays. Uh, sort of thinking, yeah, as we move forward um, and we're in that post-pandemic world, how quickly do you think clinical trials and procedures, et cetera, that have been put on hold just to deal with the COVID crisis will, will sort of, you know, be re-triggered, we'll be back on track? And... You know, what are you doing to sort of ensure that once you're able to get those green lights, that you're going to be you know, in a position to do so? Great question. And I think it's a very, first of all, I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers, but let me tell you what we're thinking about. We are lucky in that we have um, most of our, all our, you know, our clinical trial in Alzheimer's disease, our future trials in using uh, MBO3 in breast cancer and, and our Libnate program in NASH are all in Australia, which has, as I mentioned earlier, has done a great job of squashing the curve and they're opening back up. Now they were also one of the first ones to shut things down. That's part of the reason they were so effective in squashing the curve. But I think they're gonna get back into the business of medicine. Remember, I mean, you've heard this, you're starting to hear this in um, the U.S. where, you know, there's more of a much bigger private side to medicine, or, or shall we say profitable side to medicine versus a single payer system, the government system like there is in Australia. You know, hospitals have been, they depend on, you know, elective surgery and all this kind of stuff to make ends meet. And when they had to shut this down and just take on COVID patients, I mean, they, they perform their public health duty but they got crushed financially. And so they're gonna do everything they can to get their, get back to normalcy. One of the little secrets of clinical development is when you run a clinical trial, the site that's make, running the clinical trial is charging for that privilege. In other words, there's patient charges, there's hospital charges and all that. So it, it is a profit center for them. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I don't have a problem with it. I mean, because they perform a service, the patients are there, they have to put infrastructure in to support our research efforts. But the bottom line is hospitals have to get back to some normalcy or they're just going to go out of business because they can't afford it. So that normalcy is what, and, and simply spoken, is elective surgery because that's where the money is and clinical development, because that's where the money is. Well, so yeah. I think, I think it'll, it won't be straightforward, but it'll happen in due time. I mean, just think about it. I mean, you walk around now, I don't know what it's like in London, but everywhere you go in the United States, people are wearing masks. And initially, everybody was kind of nervous about it and shy about it. It's going to become, you know, pretty soon you'll be able to get a Louis Vuitton mask, for Christ's sake. You know? I mean, that's the way it'll be, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a good point. So, uh, so, so finally, um, so you, you've you know, identified, you know, sort of um, uh, the plan to, you know, treat 
uh, or, or run a trial with with, with your, your your soluble TNF inhibitor uh, platform uh, in, in COVID nineteen patients. What what I mean, it's it's the beginning of May at the moment. What what what's the sort of the the sort of the timeline of of, of, of news flow? What what yeah. what sort of messages can we expect yeah. to hear? Yeah. So, and, and <laughs> you sound like an investor now. I always joke that that I have to feed the monster because investors have an insatiable appetite for news flow, and uh, you know I respect that. It's a it's a practical side of our, our our business. The fact is, you know, some of this is gated by the FDA. I mean, we are uh, in the process of you know we've submitted the pre IND document. We received their comments. We're in the process of submitting the IND document. I will say to the credit of the FDA. The FDA has really put taken an all hands on deck approach that they have really put people from all parts of, of the uh, of the agency into the process of supporting uh, the COVID-19 effort. Uh, to give you an example, the um, uh, the reviewer that we had for our our program is someone from the rheumatology transplant division. Normally for something that has a pulmonary disease, infectious viral infectious process, it would be viral or, or a respiratory disease. So they have pulled people in place. They are, they are committing to rapid turnarounds. I think we had a seven day turnaround of our pre IND document, which is, um, I mean, really unbelievable. And, and like I said, hats off to them. Likewise, the hospitals and the, uh, the hospitals have something called the uh, um, IRB, which is an institutional review board, which is basically an ethics committee. When you go there with a protocol and say, I want to run this clinical trial, it goes through a process where they say, you know, is it justified? Is the science good? Is it ethical and all that? IRB committees, which have a, you know, kind of a casual pace. When it comes to COVID-19, in fact, I've worked with the uh, chairman of the IRB at uh, the Montefiore system in, in New in the Bronx of New York city, which was really really in the middle of the surge of uh, in New York city. And he said that their IRB was turning, uh, you know, um, protocols, ethics pro, uh, committee, giving ethics committee um, uh, comments, uh, agreements within three or four days. So everybody has stepped up. So in our in our point, we, you know, I would expect, I would hope, don't hold me to this, that certainly about within four weeks we should be starting our trial, um, and that's a combination of really, you know, getting the uh, the I, uh, the final process done with the FDA and moving through the ethics committee. I think on the outside it's going to be eight weeks, but uh, we're we're aiming for four weeks, so it'll probably be somewhere in between. And then, you know, we'll enroll the patients in a way that allow us to capture the data. You know, I have to say in some ways, I'm almost, you know, I'm really happy for New York that the surge is over. But, you know, going into a place like like some of the hospitals in New York that were just completely overrun with patients. I mean, London's probably the same way. That's a hard place to do a clinical trial because there's some bits that you have to do when you're doing studying these patients that are a little bit over and beyond what traditional you know or standard care is. And I can tell you, having been there uh, in my previous life, when you're back to the wall, you just don't have the time for the research piece because you're just taking care of patients and you're taking care of one. And when you solve that problem, you move to the next one. 
you don't care about soluble TNF. You just care about get to the next patient and making a difference. So I, I, I said that that was going to be my final question, but there was something there that I just like to uh, sort of follow up. So you were sort of you know, recognizing the sort of the, the sort of the velocity that you know regulators and these IRBs, etc. Um, the way that they were mobilizing their resource to, to focus on, on, on this issue. Is, do you think, you know, in a post-pandemic world that um, all, all these various groups will kind of, sort of recognize that actually it is possible to, to work at a, a, at a faster pace to, to be able to, to resolve these issues? Yeah, your lips to God's ears. I think that's a great question. I think, you know, I, I think the FDA currently, and I will say the system has always been responsive to urgency and emergency. I mean, and, and I know the most about the FDA, so let me talk about the FDA. I mean, they've always had these special use INDs, these rapid approval mechanisms where they do work faster. But those tend to be one-offs and they're not super frequent because the, usually the magnitude of the problem is smaller. So I think that the systems have always been in place, but what's different now, and that's the same with the IRBs. I mean, you know, if you need a patient-specific IRB for an emergency application, you can get that very quickly at almost any place. But what's different about this is the scale. I mean, this is just huge. And I just don't think any organization can be designed to run at 190% because it just won't happen. Mistakes will be made. You know, at the end of the day, the FDA, and I think they do a great job, is all about safety. Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? Oh, by the way, does it work? Right. I mean, that's what they're about. You know, when patients are dying, they worry more about efficacy than safety. But at the end of the day, we want them to worry about safety. And I think things will change. You know, you're going to see more telemedicine. You're going to see more monitoring, monitoring visits that don't have to be face-to-face. There will be changes. But you're not going to see, it's not going to go like this forever because it's just, first of all, it can't. You know, people will burn out. Secondly, it, at the end of the day, you know, for a lot of diseases, I mean, if you're the, I don't want to pick on asthma. If you're the 17th drug coming in for asthma, there's no emergency there because there's 16 other choices, right? So, you know, I think they've got the balance right. So, you know, it works. It works. So, RJ, thanks very much for for taking the time to to speak to us today. Uh, I genuinely wish you and your company success um, because, you know, what you're doing... Uh, you know, is potentially uh, you know a solution to to a critical problem at this time, um, and you know, you know, also grateful with for the sort of the insights and and, and the stories that you've actually shared because uh, I'm sure they're going to be very useful. They're going to resonate with you know uh, other uh, you know business leaders um, in, in in the healthcare sector. So so thanks for that. If after listening to 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 this broadcast, you've got questions for either me or RJ please click the link, um, which is at the end of the video. And also, you know, we'd love to hear from you. So, you know, please give us your feedback because that will obviously help 
shape the kind of content that we are developing going forward. Also, you know, if you'd actually like to sort of tune into uh, future episodes, follow our LinkedIn page because we'll be posting alerts to when those uh, releases are going to be um, uh, put out. So in closing, uh, I'd like to thank RJ again. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thanks to like the... I'd like to thank the listeners for, for, for also tuning in. Um, and also, you know, on behalf of uh, myself, DRG, and Clarivate, we'd also like to thank you know, all those in the healthcare system who are you know, working incredibly hard to you know, find a solution to, to, to this problem. You know, the work that you do is, is absolutely critical and you know, won't be forgotten. So you know, we're all indebted to you. So until next time, uh, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward, and I hope to see you in the next episode.